0: the series, Fact Check. Uh, I've got a handful of friends from our staff team tonight that are up here on the stage with me. And um, let me start by framing up the night with a a recent story, actually from yesterday in my own life. I got up work, went home, walked in the door. It's early evening and my son is right by the door and he almost greets me. And the first question that he asks is, Daddy, do I have to get a spanking? I have no context for why he's asking me this. And this is really the first time at this moment type of thing. He's a four-year-old kid. In fact, here's a picture of him and his sister Monroe and crew. And, um, And he's looking at me and he's asking me that. And I look at his mom and I say, I don't know. Does he have to get a spanking? And she says, yes, we've had a bad day. We've not been listening. We've been arguing. And I told him when daddy gets home, you're getting a spanking. Now, this was the first time I'd ever had this experience. Like I'd been on the receiving end of this scenario many, many times where I was the little child or the kid growing up who was told by their mom, hey, when daddy gets home, you're going to get the belt, you're going to get spanking. And this is Texas people, so we still spank here. And I was very familiar with uh, just that experience. I'd never been on the other side of what it was like to be the dad who was just getting home and what you know, all the different emotions and thoughts kind of go through the head of that father. Because parents say things, if you remember growing up as a kid where they give you spankings and they say things where you're like, is that really true? Is that really how you feel? Because I'm not, honestly, I'm not convinced. Where they say things like this, like, hey, I have to give you a spanking and this hurts me more than it hurts you. Because as a kid, you're like, I don't know that I believe that. I'm the only one leaving with red lines on my behind and you, and I'm the one in tears and you're not. It's a, but now I'm on the dad dad's side of this where I'm going like, oh man, I have to give my son a spanking and just all the emotions of like, I, it is true, parents, it's not a fun thing. I mean, uh, you know, Josiah's got kids. He, he knows what I'm talking about. It's not a fun thing to give your kids a spanking. I mean, my son, as you saw, like he's in the 98th percentile for height. He's scrawny. He doesn't have much padding on his behind. Giving spankings, it really is something he doesn't look forward to. And as a dad, I hate when consequences for his actions, his disobedience leads to me having to punish him or having to spank him. And yet I know that it's a part of raising and growing and it gives us honestly it gives me a chance to talk through you know, what it looks like to listen to mommy and daddy and consequences for our actions. But it is a hard and challenging thing just as a parent where you have to do it. Here's my point. Tonight we're finishing the series where we are covering one of the most difficult objections to Christianity or putting on the stand as we have every single week in fact check these different Christian beliefs. And tonight is a really challenging one for a lot of people. And that is how can a loving God allow people to go to hell? If he's a loving heavenly father, just like an earthly heavenly father doesn't enjoy or doesn't like or doesn't want to give even a spanking to his children, how can a perfect loving heavenly father be okay with a consequence for people being eternity away from him, experiencing the horror of hell. Like, how is that possible? Like, is that even really true? A lot of people, like, this is where they're like, hey, whatever Jesus is talking about, he can't actually be talking about hell. That's probably not actually true. A lot of people walk away from their faith because they can't get over this objection. So tonight, we are putting to a test or checking the fact that God is love He's a loving God and people go to hell. So we're gonna be in Luke chapter 16. If you have a Bible, you can flip open there. If not, it'll be up on the screens, but we're gonna cover and walk through some of Jesus's teaching on hell. Specifically, I wanna answer three things. What is hell? Who will be in hell? And how hell actually shows us the love of God. What is hell? Who will be in hell? And how hell shows us the love of God. If it's true, if you're skeptical, the answer to tonight's fact check has more significant consequences for you, for our world, for eternity than any other question you will ever ponder. So maybe you're wondering like, ah, just, you know, I reject that. I at least want you to listen long enough to say, hey, if I'm going to reject Christianity because of what it says about hell, I at least want you to know what it says about hell because it may surprise you. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 16. If you have a Bible, I'm going to start in verse 19. Jesus is teaching and he starts with a parable. What's a parable? It's just a story that he gives to make up a point or to prove a point. Jesus was a masterful storyteller and he's teaching this group of Pharisees, which were like this religious group that thought that they could have a relationship with God because they were good people. They were like, hey, we're pros on their business card. It says professional religious person and that's why God's going to accept me. And over and over, Jesus is like, that's not how God works. And he launches into a conversation about heaven and hell with that group. And here's what he says. He starts and tells this story. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Uh, side note, in this time, someone who was wealthy was often seen as blessed by God. So if you were rich, hey, it was because God's blessing was on you. If you were poor, it's because God clearly was not for you. So this guy, purple, like only the who's who got to wear purple because it was such an expensive thing. And so this guy dressed to the nines, very rich, culture would have assumed wrongly. Oh man, God is clearly for that guy. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Jesus sets up a very clear contrast. Super rich, super poor. The time came when the beggar died and the angels took him to Abraham's side. Abraham's side is just a word that Jesus' audience would have understood as like paradise. Father Abraham, kind of founder of the faith, if you will. Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, your translation may have, it's just a word for paradise. It's like heaven today before the new heavens. So it's just basically he's taken to heaven. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up, Hades, he's in hell. He looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip dip the tip of his finger in water and come and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been placed so that those who want to go from here to there cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then, Father, I beg you, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone comes from the dead to them, they will repent. He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Jesus is such a brilliant storyteller. There's so many even foreshadowing his own raising from the dead where he's going to rise. And uh, But the thing I, I want to really highlight is we launch into what does the Bible say about hell? Who's there? And how does it show us the love of God? is a couple things that we see inside of this passage. Basically, Jesus says, hey, there's a place called heaven, there's a place called hell. He gives two scenarios, two deaths, two different different destinations, one of which was hell. One of the things that we learn underneath the first point of, hey, what is hell? So just get a big framework for what does the Bible teach about hell? It's a place that's absent of anything good. Abraham says, hey, you received your good things in life. Uh, He's bad, now it's the opposite. James chapter one Another book in the Bible, in the first chapter says, "Everything good in life comes from the Father of lights." Heaven is a place where everything is good. Hell is a place where there is total absence of anything good. In other words, people will be like, "Hey, look, I'd rather, you know, go to hell with my buddies and have a beer with the devil than be up there playing a harp on a cloud." That's because they don't understand what hell is. There's no buddies in hell. There's no having a beer with the buddies. They have a fundamental misunderstanding because all of those are gifts and good things from God. And those are not present in hell. Hell is the absence of anything good. Hell is the separation, the second thing, just a few things. It's the separation from the presence of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse eight and nine, the apostle Paul is writing and he's describing hell. Here's what he says. God will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel or the good news of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Heaven, by definition, is the presence of God. Hell is the separation from the presence of God. Third thing that you see, and this may be a helpful distinction really quickly, is we're told hell is a place of torment, not torture. There's a big difference. Torture is external. Torment is internal. If I'm experiencing everlasting torment, They're internal things. Maybe it's, hey, I'm covered in shame and guilt. I'm covered in uh, anxiety. I'm covered in fear. I'm covered with loneliness, paralyzing, crippling. It's internal. This is what it says in the verse. In Hades, where the rich man was in torment. Torture is somebody on the outside poking you with a stick. Torment is an internal experience. Generally, when the Bible, and most scholars believe, over and over, when Jesus says he describes hell as a fire, he describes hell as like utter darkness, a place where the worm never dies. He describes it as gnashing of teeth and some really um, graphic language. And most people believe he's being metaphorical. He's saying it's terrible of a place as you can imagine. In other words, it's hard to reconcile. How could it be total fire and total darkness? Because fire brings light in the dark. The point, they're both imagery. Most people believe. Jesus is just describing a scenario where it's, it's terrible because you're removed from the presence of God. And that darkness... It's total darkness figuratively because there's no presence of God. God is light. And so whatever it is, it, torment, and I'm not under or trying to invalidate the, the horribleness of hell. I mean, it's terrible. But there's a way in which it involves self-torment on the inside. Hell, finally, there's degrees of punishment We don't have time to get into this right now, but one other thing just to know about hell is that it involves degrees of punishment. Read throughout the New Testament, Jesus over and over repeats, hey, based on the severity of someone's actions and the life that they lived, there will be corresponding punishments in their life. And finally, here's what hell is, and this will be really helpful for some of you because I'll be as bold to say, I don't know that you want a world without hell. Why do I say that? Hell displays the justice of God. Hell displays and puts in perspective and puts in an account for every action and every evil and every harm and every messed up thing inside of our world. It will all be held to account. In other words, nobody gets away. Even if they, they get off scot-free, if they committed the crime, they will settle every crime and every sin will be paid for in hell. Every injustice in our world will be paid for in hell. Why do I say that you wouldn't want to? Like you think about the horrific actions that took place in the Holocaust where millions of Jewish people were shoved into gas chambers and killed and exterminated to imagine that, hey, you know what? And they'll never, ever be held accountable. They'll never have to give an account for the horrific actions of murdering all those people. I mean, it's crazy. And in hell, every crime, every sin, all of the cries of our world for justice will be settled. Either there or every sin is paid for or on the cross. Our world cries for justice. I mean, you look around All the time, people are going, man, when there's injustice, something inside of us goes, that is wrong. The fact that that person wasn't held accountable or that there's no justice over what they did. Why do I say that? This is a picture of a a guy that recently has been all over social media or the news and just the public conversation, and appropriately so. His name's Ahmaud Arbery. And a couple months ago, he was out, seems jogging in a neighborhood, and two people thought he was up to something and they decided to make a citizen's arrest and he lost his life because of the exchange, the interaction that took place there. It's an, an unbelievable tragedy. Every time a life is lost, it's tragic. But then afterwards, there was no investigation. The two people who shot him were not took to trial, or they weren't put in a jail cell, they weren't held accountable, and the demand in our world cried out, this is unjust, because there's something inside of us that wants to see justice take place for every action And in hell, every single single crime or sin will be settled for. There's never a person who uh, traffics sex slaves, rapists. All of the actions of people will be paid for in hell or were paid for on the cross. Hell brings about and shows us the justice of God in a world of injustice. Okay, so that's kind of a framework of hell. Who will be in hell? Which is as important of a question if hell is true, that anyone can ever ask? Or how can I not be there? Hell is filled, second point, with people who refuse to worship God. Those who make up hell are those who reject God, the one true God, the God of the Bible. They reject God and they refuse, excuse me, they refuse to worship him. Romans chapter one says, this is what the wrath of God looks like. People that say, God, I don't want you in my life. I don't wanna worship you as God. I don't want you to be the God of my life. And God says, I'll hand you over to letting you be the God of your life. And you're not gonna like where it leads, but I'll hand you over. That's what it says the wrath of God is displayed or looks like in Romans chapter one. It says this in Romans chapter one, verse 24. After saying the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, it leads to God handed them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. God saying, man, you, can, you wanna be your own God? You can be your own God. You're not gonna like where it leads. But the person who says, hey, I wanna do what I wanna do. I speak my truth. Nobody can tell me what to do. There is no God out there who I'm confined by. I'll do whatever I want to do whenever I want. And God, I don't want you in my life. God eventually says, okay, I'm not gonna force you into heaven. I won't force you in a relationship. And hell is filled with people who reject God It's been said, maybe those in hell had they the opportunity to even get out. They wouldn't want to get out. They don't want to be in heaven because that's where God is. And if they didn't worship and didn't love God and didn't want to do anything with God in this life, why would they want to in the next? And I, I just imagine with me, could it be true that those who make up hell, like they're not anxious to get out. They still don't want to worship God. Lazarus, never in the story. Did you recognize this? He never says, Abraham, hey, let me out of here. Please let me out of here. The only thing he asks is, hey, I want Lazarus to be my errand boy and go get water for me. He still is so self-centered and self-absorbed. All he thinks about is himself. Still worshiping himself and expect others to perform acts of worship on himself. Could it be that Lazarus or could it be that the rich man or could it be that hell is filled with people? Whereas C.S. Lewis said, the door is locked from the inside. They don't want out. They reject God and they will for all of eternity. C.S. Lewis said this, where I got the quote from the door being locked on the inside, which you know what that means, right? Like when somebody's in their house, the door is locked from the inside. In other words, people may try to get in or try to get those people out, but if they're the ones locking people out. He said, hell... The damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end, those who will go to hell. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. They enjoy the forever, forever, the horrible freedom they've demanded. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want any God, and I never will. And they've rejected him. And they're self-enslaved. In the end, there are only two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done. And those who reject God, who he in the end says, thy will be done. I will not force you to love me. I will not force you in a relationship with me. I will not force myself on you. And I will give you the extent of your freedom you can choose to reject. The question I think for all of us is, are you right now, on that side of the question, are you the person who is saying, God, thy will be done. You are the God of my life. Your will be done in my life. Are you saying, God, my will be done. I don't want you in my life. I don't want anything to do with you in my life. Because God, to that person, eventually says, thy will be done. I won't force you. I won't force me into your life and I won't force you into heaven. You can have separation from me if that's what you want and rejection of me. People often ask, hey, well, what about good people? Like, What about people who live pretty much good lives like Gandhi? You know, Gandhi did a bunch of things. You're telling me just because he didn't accept, you know, Jesus as God and and worship the the Bible or worship the God of the Bible, that Gandhi's in hell? What about good people? The Bible, as crazy as it is, says there is no such thing as good people. There was only one who was good. Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, this is Jesus speaking, says no one is good except God alone. Most of us think like, well, I'm, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. I'm better, better than most on average. By heaven's definition and heaven's standard, it says no one is good. That if you've ever lied, if you've ever stolen, you ever cheated, you've ever gossiped, you've ever uh, spoken harshly or with anger in your heart towards someone, all of those, the Bible would say, makes you someone who is no longer good by heaven's definition and heaven's standard. This is why like good actions and being a good person won't get you in because biblically no one is good. Why does God allow people to reject him? Like why why would he allow anybody to reject him? Like why would God allow someone to not want to have a relationship with him or to refuse to worship him? Like why? Couldn't God just force everybody? Yes, he will not force you to love him. He will not force you to be in relationship with him. You can't force love anyways. Like, like here, here's an example. Of like, Ladies, you'll, you'll resonate with this. If a guy comes up to you, and um, we we'll use Ramsey over here. A guy comes up, he's like, hey, Rams, um, I, I love you, and I want to be in a relationship with you, and I want us to date. And this was a good guy. You liked him. He's a friend of yours. And you're like, hey, oh, man, let's say his name is Barry. You're like, Barry, <laughs> I, I got to be honest with you. I've never seen you that way. I really don't have feelings for you. I like you as a friend, or you're like a brother to me. It's like the death nail, Barry, in your heart of that relationship's going nowhere. But let's say, you know, he's persistent. He comes back. He's like, our story's gonna end like the notebook or something. I'm gonna keep going to her. And I, hey, I love you. I wanna be in a relationship with you. And he keeps coming back and he keeps coming back. If eventually he comes to you and says, hey, I love you so much. I'm gonna force you to be in a relationship with me. Anything uh, goes through your mind and you're an average girl other than, hey, this guy's crazy. I'm about to get a restraining order. This thing is done. I I don't want this person in my life at all. He would be nuts. I mean, that that type of obsessiveness and forcefulness, if he came by gunpoint and says, hey, I love you so much, I'm going to force you to love me. One, you wouldn't love him and it would be terrible. God, in the same way, is not gonna force anybody to love him and force them to have a relationship with him. He loves people more than any of us will ever love people. But just like in that scenario with a dating relationship, Ramsey would head for the hills and get out of there because that guy is crazy. So God is not some crazy person who will force you into a relationship and force you into love with him. And so those who spend eternity in hell will do so because they have rejected God. And just like in that scenario, if that guy really did love Ramsey, he wouldn't force her into that relationship. What would he do? He would leave her alone. Sarah, you don't want anything or you have rejected me and I do love you. So I'm not gonna force you. I will leave you alone. And God in the end is saying, man, I do love, even those who reject me, i love. But I will not force them to love me back and I will not force them into a relationship. I will leave them alone. Even if it means for all of eternity. Finally, how does hell show us the love of God? As so I started saying that hell, hell is separation from God, Hell is a place where those who reject God will be. By the way, rejecting God doesn't always look like you saying, God, I reject. It looks like you saying, I deserve to go to heaven because I'm a good person. If you say that, you have rejected God. And I'm about to explain why, because God says, like he told the Pharisees, that's not how heaven works. You don't get in through being a good person. There's no such thing. But that type of person would be rejecting God. Now, how can hell show us the love of God? Because that seems incompatible. It's like, well... It's like so harsh, that punishment. How does that show the love of God? Because what Jesus did on the cross shows us the length to which God was willing to go so that no one would have to go to hell, that God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. And he's proven it and showed it and is so passionate about no one spending eternity apart from him that he was willing to go to the very farthest length possible, which is giving the life of his own son on a cross. There is no greater payment that he could have given. And he goes to such an extent in order to prove, this is how much you are worth to me. That Jesus was willing to experience separation from God, crucifixion on the cross, in order that you and I would not have to experience hell. He went through, as it were, hell, which is separation from God, so you and I wouldn't have to. That's how much you are worth to him. Hell shows us how valuable you are to God. Oh, why do I say that? You remember like in economics, you guys, do you ever take economics? Oh, Yeah, you did. I know you took economics, this guy. Hey, in economics, there's like a principle that, hey, the value of something is determined not by what somebody says arbitrarily it's worth, it's determined by the price someone will pay for it. So if I say, hey, this phone is worth a million dollars, it's not worth a million dollars unless someone is willing to pay for it. Like the value of a thing is determined by the payment it will bring. When it comes to you and it comes to me and it comes to humanity as a whole, how valuable are you to God? the question is, to what lengths is God willing to go in order to pay for you? To pay for the penalty and the consequences of your sin. And the link is the own life of his son. There is no farther distance he could have gone. That's how valuable you are to God. uh, This past week, uh, it was Mother's Day. Decided I'm going to get some flowers. I've never gotten the professional flowers. And... um, and uh, for my wife, who's mom, and, and I looked at the price tag, and, uh, and the price tag from Costco to, like, Flowers Direct is shockingly different. It's, like, <laughs> multiples of one another. And I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I should do this. And then I was like, well, she did give birth to our children. It feels like, it feels like it's worth it. And that scenario it was worth it to me because I was willing to pay the price. When God looked at you and he looked at our world, it was worth it to him. And he said, no matter the price, I'll pay it. It's how valuable they are to me. Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Listen to me. What if every time that he spoke of it, it was because he was a loving God wanting to warn you. I don't want you to go there. Jesus, more than anybody else, if you like Jesus, he's the guy who brings it up over and over and over. Half of his parables are about the subject of hell. He brings it over or brings it up uh, time and time and time again. And what if it's not because he's some brimstone, angry God out there with a temper tantrum, but he's trying to warn you, I don't want you to experience eternity separated from me. And every time it's a loving father warning us. Like, if I was to ask this room, hey, is it possible for a loving father to yell at their kids? What would you say? Ramsey, you're thinking about it? She's still thinking about Barry, I think. Uh, <laughs> No, if I was to say that, most, let's just run to it. I think a lot of people would say no, but the better question would be like, well, what's the context? Because there could be a scenario where it is totally appropriate to yell at your kids. Example, my almost two-year-old daughter the other day two days ago, was running out into the street. She was running, headed towards the street. And of course, I did what any loving heavenly father did, which is I'm yelling and running after her, come back here. She can't see the truck that's coming around the edge and what's headed, or what's headed towards her or what she's headed towards. And so like any loving father, of course, I'm yelling out, warning her. Every time you see Jesus mention it, and he mentions it more than anybody else in the Bible over and over and over again. It's because he's loving God who's warning and doesn't want anyone to go there. Second Peter chapter 3 says that God is patient, warning no one to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God loves people. He loves you. He loves everyone more than anybody else on the planet does. And he wants no one to spend eternity apart from them. So of course we would expect him to bring it up over and over. And on that cross, Jesus endured horrific physical pain, but even more so, spiritual pain because he was separated from God. You may not know this, but it wasn't just the being crucified. He also we're told was forsaken by God as though God almost turned his back. The relationship was cut off as he was crucified on that cross. Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That their relationship was cut off. To have a relationship cut off is always painful. But the degree of the intimacy of that relationship is directly related to the degree of pain when that relationship is severed. What do I mean? Let me explain. Like if, uh, you know, my neighbor's cat dies, I'm like, oh, that's that's sad. Um, I didn't really have, you know, didn't really know the cat. And I guess that's kind of a bummer. And there you go. Uh, If my neighbor dies, it's way more sad because we have a much stronger relationship. If my wife dies, it's it's horrifically sad and painful in my life. The degree of the relationship is directly related to the degree of the pain in that loss. Jesus experienced a level of pain out of that relational cutoff deeper than anything anyone has ever imagined because he was in perfect, eternal relationship with the heavenly father. And then we're told he was made sin for you and me and took the wrath of God for every. Sinful action you and I have made and was separated from God. He went through hell so that you and I wouldn't have to. Isaiah chapter 53 says this. Jesus was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. Perfect, innocent God. Beaten so that you and I could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. And all of us like sheep have strayed away. We left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the sins of all of us. God loves you to such an extent. This is how it shows the love of God that he's willing to say, man, I love you so much. I'll lay even my own life down. I'll take everything wrong about this world, every sinful action that you've ever done, every punishment that you deserve, that every person out there deserves. And I'll take all of it. And the full weight of all of that, the Bible says, went on Jesus on that cross where he was crucified, for every look at pornography, every premarital sex act, every time that you and I gossiped about another person, every time that we were rude, selfish, self-seeking, everything messed up candidly in my heart. You may think like pastors, they get it all together. I'm not a good person. I, I honestly, I think I'm better than most people, which even reflects that I'm not a good person. Like there's parts of my heart, I, I lust after women who are not my wife. I have thoughts about how other people don't do enough for me. I'm selfish. I get angry. I have things in my life that I wish weren't there. And I don't deserve to have a relationship with God. And despite all of that, on that cross, everything wrong I've ever done in the past, and the future, all of it was paid for by Jesus. Because that is how great the love of God is. He didn't want anyone to spend eternity in hell. And he doesn't want you to spend eternity in hell. But the way you can avoid that is by accepting, not rejecting God's gift in your life of dying in the cross on Dying in your place. Dying for your sins. Do you guys know what the name Lazarus means? This is, this is why Jesus is such a fantastic storyteller. Like, it's just so brilliant. You guys know? It means the one God helps. Like you can go look it up. You can Google it. It's in like some pastor trick. Go look it up. The name is the one God helps. Think about that. How brilliant is it? Who's going to spend eternity with God? The one God helps helps. You can't get there on your own. You'll never get there on your own. Your good actions won't enable you to deserve a relationship. The bad things you've done don't keep you out of having a relationship with God. It is you accepting the help of God that if I'm going to have a relationship with you for all of eternity, it's going to be contingent on you, on what you did in my place, on the fact that you paid for everything wrong in my life, everything wrong I've ever done. And you said, if I just trust in you that whosoever believes, John three sixteen says, not whosoever behaves shall have eternal life. It's whosoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that invitation and that offer is extended to you and all of humanity, but you will not ever get there if you just assume, hey, I can get there, I deserve to be there on my own. You are not the one God helps. Only those who receive the help and the free gift of God in Christ will spend eternity with God. If you've never had a moment in your life where you trusted in that gift, tonight is your night. You're not saved by saying magic words of a prayer. A prayer is only something where you go to God and you know, people will be like, did you pray the prayer? A magic prayer or saying doesn't save you. The prayer just reflects a belief and a posture of your heart that goes, man, I, I think I'm a sinner. I think I'm, I'm messed up. I'm not a good person, God. But I believe that you gave your life on the cross. You died for me despite the fact that I didn't deserve it. And I trust not in how many times I go to the church or go to church or read my Bible or good things that I do, but only in what you did. You're the only reason why I could have eternal life. I'm trusting only in that, God. And I believe that because of what you did for me, I stand with you and I don't have to worry about where I'm gonna spend eternity because it'll be with you. In your own way, acknowledging I'm a sinner. God, you loved me so much, you died for me. And I believe that what you did Dying in my place and rising again from the grave has given me forgiveness of sins. It's not good people in heaven and bad in hell. It's forgiven people in heaven and everybody else in hell. And that invitation is offered to you tonight, wherever you are in the quiet of your room. Maybe you're with other people. You just need to step outside and go, do I believe this? Do I believe this? And in doing so, if you decide to receive that free gift forever, you don't have to wonder where you stand with God. You don't have to wonder where you go when you die. And if you haven't, you don't have to wonder candidly either because you're gonna spend eternity apart from God because you're rejecting God's help. God is savior. And the reason why Jesus came. In conclusion, hell is a place where the justice of God is revealed. Those who reject the free gift of God and reject God will be there. And hell displays how loving how much God loves you and me and what he was willing to do, the lengths he was willing to go to. Let me close by saying this. Um, there was a guy, uh, to give you a quick history example that kind of illustrates what Christianity teaches. His name was George Wilson. He was uh, a guy in the 18, late 1820s, around 1829 in Pennsylvania. He robbed a mail carrier. So he decided to go up, a federal mail carrier, he robbed him, he ended up killing the mail carrier. He was captured and he was put on trial and he was convicted and he was found guilty of of, uh, a federal crime and he was sentenced to death by execution, to hanging by execution. And he's sitting in jail and it's George Wilson and some of his friends, he was well connected. He had people in high places. They went to the president of the United States. It's a true story, you can look it all up. And they said, hey, George Wilson is in jail. Can you issue him a federal, uh, a presidential pardon? Presidential pardon is the only way if there's a federal crime that you're getting out of that sentence without paying for your crime. So they go to him and for whatever reason, Andrew Jackson decides, I'm going to uh, extend a presidential pardon to George Wilson so that he wouldn't have to die. George is told and he's brought to court and they say, the president has extended this pardon to you. And George says, I don't want his pardon. We're not really told why. It's kind of a mystery. Some people think it's because he he didn't want to acknowledge guilt or acknowledge that I was guilty of that crime or he just wanted to kind of like stick it to the man and I don't care about any of you guys, but he didn't accept. Or he says, I I don't accept it, I don't even care. And this forced a question in the court where they go, what do you do? If there's a presidential pardon that's issued, can someone reject a presidential pardon? And it led to another court, like they ran it up the courts. And eventually it went to the United States Supreme Court. There's United States versus Wilson. It's a classic court case. If you went to law school, you may have been familiar with it. And here's what the Supreme Court ruled. This is Chief Justice John Marshall, Marshall. A pardon is an act of grace proceeding from the power entrusted with the execution of the law. So basically, it's an act of grace from the president. But its delivery is not completed without acceptance of that pardon. It may be rejected by the person to whom it is given. And we have no power in a court to force it on them. Here's the Supreme Court ruled. A president cannot force someone to accept a presidential pardon. So George Wilson can choose to reject it. And a pardon, if it is not accepted, it is not applied. George Wilson was executed by hanging because he decided, I reject that pardon. The Bible teaches something very similar. God has extended a presidential, a divine pardon to all people everywhere if they're willing to accept the free gift that Jesus died in their place. In, in many ways, it's, it's a far greater pardon than that one because the president in that scenario just writes up a pardon and says, hey, you're off the hook. In the Christian scenario or what happened scenario is that God said, hey, somebody has to pay for this sin and I'm not gonna force it on you. I'm willing to extend a pardon to you because I'm going to crush my son on a cross and pay for all of the sins of humanity and all of the sins of the world around us. And, And that, he extended to every person a divine pardon. And the choice is yours. Are you going to accept it? Because if you do not, it will not be applied. But it's not because it's not extended by God. Just like it was by the president, it was extended. It just wasn't accepted. Every person listening right now and just in the world in general has been extended a divine pardon by God, saying, I'm paying for it, I've paid for it. But you have to accept it or it will not be applied. He's a loving God. He didn't want anyone to go to hell and he was willing to go to such great lengths to go through hell in and of itself if it were so that you and I wouldn't have to. Let me pray. Father, thank you that, and thank you seems like silly, honestly, that you would endure eternal death in our place and suffering at a level that none of us will ever know, so that all of us could spend eternity with you. Father, I pray for anyone listening right now who's never trusted in what Jesus did on the cross, they still think their good actions or their bad actions are the way they can have a relationship with you, that you would pierce through that fog and Let them see it as a lie. That is a lie from hell. That good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. It is only forgiven people. And the only way to get that forgiveness is by receiving the free gift of what you did on the cross. We're unworthy, God, and yet you love us. You gave your life for us. You paid it all for us. Would you allow people tonight for the very first time to trust in that? And would you allow those of us who have to walk in light of that, to share our faith in light of the fact that everyone around us will spend eternity somewhere. And it doesn't have to be apart from you. Father, we love you. We praise you that you paid it all. We worship you in song. Amen.